Okay. Real quick, just so uh, just so I feel so my insecurities are addressed. <laughs> Can everyone stand up? Okay, stand up. You know what that is? Okay. Let's just move around a little bit, okay? We need a little stretch, maybe. Get them arms out. Okay, good. All right, you can sit now. You know what? He, I don't know if you guys know this. Pastors are so insecure. Um, sometimes pastors will be like, let's give the Lord some praise to, so everyone claps, and that's really just so they feel better. All right? I try not to use that trick, um, so I'd rather have you stretch. All right, got it? I'm not saying everyone does that, but definitely some people do. Okay. This morning we're starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We just concluded about three months on the Ten Commandments. Uh, that series on the Ten Commandments was really to set us up for the series on the Sermon on the Mount. So we took 11 weeks to go through the ten, uh, uh, 12 weeks, I mean, to go through the Ten Commandments. We had a week of introduction, then all Ten Commandments, and then a week that we concluded by looking at the greatest commandments that Jesus gave us, which are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. As we go into the Sermon on the Mount this week, I want you to know that the Sermon on the Mount has multiple portions or sections to it. So like today, we're just going to look at the first six or so verses, which are part of what we call the Beatitudes. Okay, The Beatitudes are basically eight statements Jesus made about a blessed life, okay? And what, we're going to get into that in a moment, but there's more to the Sermon on the Mount than the Beatitudes. There's Jesus, after the Beatitudes, goes into some teaching on morality, and then he goes into some teaching on spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines, and uh, he addresses things like trust and anxiety and lust and purity and humility. I mean, he, he covers a lot of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be spending about 11 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, and we uh, actually printed up a sermon schedule. If you didn't get one of these on your way in, you can get one on the way out. It looks like this. This is a sermon schedule so that you know what passages we're going to be preaching on in advance. Might I even recommend reading the passage in advance? The sermon goes a little better for everyone involved, if maybe you've familiarized yourself. We're never really doing more than a few verses. The, the biggest chunk that we're doing is Matthew 5, 17 through 48, and we're spending two weeks on that. Uh, everything else is 10 or 12 verses or less most weeks, so maybe check those out in advance. That schedule is, of course, subject to change if we need to, but that's generally what we're going to stick with, all right? All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, all right? Jesus, we look at this sermon as uh, the first real public teaching, at least in a large context, that you did. And it really set the stage for your ministry, and it is still meaningful and applicable to us today. And we want to be Sermon on the Mount disciples that live these principles out through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This summer, uh, my family and I went to North Carolina for vacation, which we try to do every couple years, and we were coming back up, driving back up to Philly, and we hit Washington, D.C., and we had planned to do half a day in Washington, D.C. We were like, we'll get up early. I think we stayed in Virginia. We got up, we hit D.C. by like 10 a.m., and we were like, we'll just stay in D.C. till about 
in between lunch and dinner, and then we'll get back home to Philly. Our kids had never been to Washington, D.C., and it had been a long time since we had been there. So we went to Washington, D.C., and we hit the, the normal sites. We saw the White House. We went to the Lincoln Memorial, Washington Monument, Vietnam Veterans Wall, uh, and Starbucks. <laughs> so when we were at the Washington Monument, if you can probably picture this if you've ever been there, even if you haven't, I'm sure you've seen pictures. So the Washington Monument is this big, like, pillared uh, uh, building, and there's that, uh, sorry, I said the Washington Monument. I'm talking about the Lincoln Memorial. The Lincoln Memorial is this big pillared uh, facility, and in it is this giant statue of Abraham Lincoln, and he's sitting on a chair, and you get to it, and you're like, wow, this really is big. This thing is huge, um, it, which was, it's actually life-size. That's how big he was. And we're at the Lincoln Memorial, and there's all these steps, and you go down the steps, and then that leads you to the National Mall, which is not a mall. The Mall of America is what I was always hoping for. That's in Minnesota. The National Mall is this uh, big open area, and it's got like a long rectangular pool have you seen this? If you've ever been there, maybe you've seen pictures of it. It's just a shallow reflecting pool. It's to see your reflection. It's supposed to be pretty. In the reflection of that is the Washington Monument. Uh, the day we were there, the reflecting pool was green with algae. So everyone looked like they were about to throw up in their reflection. So we're walking down, you know, me and Kendra and Aiden and Emma are walking down the Lincoln Memorial, down the steps, toward the reflecting pool, and then in the far distance is the Washington Monument, which is that tall, pointy uh, monument that sticks up. We're walking down the steps, and Aiden, our, he was seven at the time, Aiden stops, he looks around, and he goes, this is where Martin Luther King Jr. preached. Like, it clicked for him from videos and stuff that he was like, Martin Luther King Jr. preached here. And I was proud of him because he's a preacher's kid, so I'm glad he pays attention to something, you know? Like, but he knew that this is where the I Have a Dream speech was delivered. He, it clicked for him even as a seven-year-old. I don't think he knows the, all of the content of the speech, but he knows the gist of it. And, and so the fact that a seven-year-old from Philly can just be in the location and remember the I Have a Dream speech kind of, uh, it, it, it shows how important that speech was in the history of our country. I mean, the I Have a Dream speech is, as far as in American history, like, think of the most important speeches and addresses ever given. It's in the top five, easy. I mean, the Gettysburg Address, uh, the I Have a Dream speech, um, JFK Jr. saying, ask not what your country for, can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Uh, that time Kevin Durant said to everybody, you the real MVP. <laughs> like, that's top, f those are the top four speeches probably in the history of the United States, right? So, when I think of the Sermon on the Mount, I do kind of think of that Martin Luther King, I have a, Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream speech, because Jesus was up on this elevated place on a mountain. But it, it probably wasn't, it's, it certainly wasn't a mountain like the Rocky Mountains, okay? It was probably like a big hill, okay? He's giving this Sermon on the Mount. In other Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount is actually called the Sermon on the Plain because this mountain probably had a, a side and then it leveled out for a little while and then dipped down again. Again, a little bit like 
the uh, National Mall at the Washington, uh, between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, you have these steps that go up and then it levels out. And if you've seen pictures of the I Have a Dream speech, it's just hundreds of thousands of people on this flat area. So is it an elevated place or is it a flat place? Well, it can be both, actually. So Jesus uh, is giving this Sermon on the Mount to this large group of people very early in his ministry in Matthew chapter 5. Why is there such a large group of people so early in his ministry? Uh, only in Matthew chapter 3 do we see Jesus being baptized. He's really becoming a public figure at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, and he's baptized, and we, we see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and remaining on him, which is unique. This is the first time that the Holy Spirit has descended on a person in the Bible and remained. We know that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come for a time, for a purpose, and when that purpose was fulfilled, uh, the Holy Spirit would, I don't know, withdraw. But Jesus was the first person that the Holy Spirit remained on. And uh, not only did that happen, but they heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So we actually have the whole Trinity active, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus. That's in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus experiences the temptation in the wilderness. He goes straight from being baptized, having this public voice of God, and the Holy Spirit descending on a dove experience to now he's in the wilderness. It actually says the Holy Spirit is the one that led him into the wilderness to be tested. Uh, during the time in the wilderness, he faces multiple temptations uh, from Satan. Jesus uh, responds to all of those temptations by quoting scripture, often from the book of Deuteronomy. If you ever wondered if Deuteronomy is good for anything, it was good enough for Jesus to defeat Satan on multiple occasions. So uh, Jesus quotes scripture, often from Deuteronomy. Um, and after 40 days, Satan withdraws from him, and it says Jesus is strengthened for, by angels. And so in Matthew chapter 5, this is where we have the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes out of the wilderness from the temptation. It says in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus is already preaching the gospel authoritatively, the gospel of the kingdom. He's preaching in such a way that people are drawn to him. He's healing the sick, and he's casting out demons. Those are the three main things he's doing at this point. So he's doing those things so effectively that there's a large crowd of people actually following him around. How did Jesus draw a crowd? Good social media, snappy dress, good music. No, that's not how he did it. He did it through anointed preaching uh, and demonstrations of power, like healing the sick and casting out demons. So people were following him around. How did he get a big crowd? That's how he got a big crowd. And these folks are following him around, and he, he kind of settles on this kind of ele elevated spot on a mountain, and he's going to teach them. And the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' first sermon, at least first recorded sermon that we have. It's possible maybe there were some other sermons, maybe some other teachings, but this is the first one that we have. The Sermon on the Mount is not that long. Jesus said more in about 10 to 12 minutes than I can say in 40 minutes on a Sunday because I'm still stealing his stuff 2,000 years later. The Sermon on the Mount would only take you 7 to 10 minutes to read. If you're a slow reader, 12 to 15 minutes. 
It's not that long. Now, I bet Jesus was really good at dramatic pauses, so maybe he got like 20 minutes out of it. But the Sermon on the Mount is so small but so powerful. There is not one wasted word in the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes, John, Eric, and I will both tell you this, sometimes in the middle of a sermon we'll go on a little rabbit trail and we'll tell a story. Or, I mean, I've never experienced a joke that bombs, but other people do. You tell a joke, it doesn't really land. You use a story, it doesn't really work. You say something and people are confused. Jesus had none of that. Every word mattered. Every word counted. And we're still unpacking this sermon from 2,000 years ago now. Really a 15-minute public address we're still talking about because of the power that is in it. That's, that's a description of anointing. I want to read really quickly the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, even though it's not, I'm, my point is it's not that long. I'm still not going to read the whole thing today. We're going to get into it. But I want to read just the, the beginning 12 verses, which are what we call the Beatitudes. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. So, Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way that they persecuted, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, really quickly, I just want to go back to the beginning of this because today we're just going to look at the first four blessed statements. So the blessed statements that start with blessed are, those are called the Beatitudes. There's eight of them. We're going to look at four today and four next week, okay? So uh, what, what, is it, what does Jesus mean when he says blessed? Uh, I asked my wife this yesterday because she's really up on like uh, pop culture and stuff. I said, have you heard this phrase that people keep using, I'm living my best life? Has anyone heard this, best life? Okay, right. I'm not sure, but I think this originated with a Joel Osteen book in the early 2000s called Live Your Best Life Now. I'm not totally sure. I see it all the time on social media, I hear it on TV, I hear it on the radio, when people talk about living their best life, they're usually talking about like, I'm on on vacation, or I'm I'm leisure, baby, leisure is the best life, it's like a whole religion now, traveling, posting pictures of your food, Um, you know, like only, only showing up in public with your nicest pajama pants on. Uh, the best life, best life is basically money, leisure, food, travel, possessions, jobs, popularity. That's what people say when they say, I'm living my best life. Almost all of that is in conflict with what Jesus calls the blessed life, which is humility, purity, 
mourning, poverty of spirit, meekness. So this morning I kind of want to contrast what we would call in our culture the, the best life with what Jesus would call the blessed life. And that's the height of my corniness. I won't get any cornier than that today. I really debated whether to say that, but I couldn't get over it. So, Jesus describes this blessed life in terms like poverty of spirit, mourning, mercy, purity, peace, humility, and meekness. This is almost totally contradictory to what we would think would be a good or blessed life. I want to show you a quote from the NIV Zondervan Study Bible. These kingdom blessings or beatitudes disclose God's gracious favor toward his followers for traits that are opposite of what usually garners acclaim and popularity. The rewards for this countercultural behavior include present membership in the kingdom of heaven and future recompense for this life's lack of glamour. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that a, a beatific life or a blessed life is one that is marked by these things. They are not going to make you famous. They are not going to make you popular. They are not going to make you rich. They are not going to make you powerful. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to make you satisfied. Deeply, profoundly satisfied and happy. They're going to cut through all the junk, cut through all the crap, and get right to the matters of the soul. This is a quote from, uh, oh, I don't have it on the screen. I'm going to read a quote from James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in Center City for 30 years at 10th Presbyterian Church on Delancey Street. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said this, When Jesus spoke these words, he was telling his listeners how they could be deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy or satisfied. How they could maintain this happiness even in the midst of life's disappointments and hard times. The, the word for blessed in this passage actually means enviable, meaning like people will envy the happiness, people will envy the satisfaction, like people will see that and say, I also want that. Um, so this is, this is an en- envy that has to do with a state of your soul, not envy uh, about your vacations or envy about your job or envy about your possessions, but people will say, I want the, the spiritual state that you have, the connection with God, the satisfaction with Jesus that you have. I envy that. I want that. And the good news is it's free for anyone that's willing to put in the work. It's free for anyone willing to put in the work. So uh, this morning we're going to look at the first four Beatitudes or the first four statements of blessing. Oh, I have to, I keep going out of order. Okay. First, Jesus starts in verse 3 by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In in Luke chapter 6, there's another version of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus only says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's some discussion about, okay, are we talking about financial poverty or spiritual poverty? 
Well, you usually want to go with the passage that's longer because it's more detailed and expands a little more. So, and then we also find that all throughout the Bible, we're told to alleviate poverty, not bless it, right? Financial poverty. We're told to alleviate it and address it, not say, hey, good for you, you're broke, which would be like blessing poverty, right? So what Jesus is referring to here, I think, is what we would call spiritual poverty or basically spiritual bankruptcy. The idea here is you know that when you stand before God, you don't have anything of value. When Jesus taught in uh, John chapter 15, he said, apart from Jesus, Jesus taught this, apart from me, him, we can do nothing. Uh, when, when we stand before God, we don't have $100 worth of good works in our account or $1,000 worth of good works in our account. We are totally bankrupt before God spiritually. This is actually the opposite of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is like, I'm a good person. I do good things. I help people. Well, even if that's all true, now you're just patting yourself on the back for it. And when you trust in your own good deeds and your own righteousness, that is the definition of self-righteousness. Even if you're not all super religious and smug about it, uh, when you trust in your own good behavior, you are self-righteous. Your righteousness originates from yourself. Jesus is saying that you're blessed when you realize that you come to God empty-handed. You only have what he gives you. If you're gifted in an area and talented with something, you just need to know God gave you that talent and that gift. Uh, if you have a house or a place to live or a job, you need to know God provided that. Uh, if you're standing before God as one who is clean and forgiven, God provided that. If you have a ministry, God provided that. Everything you have as you stand before God is a gift that you receive from him and then return back to him. You don't start with anything. Uh, you and I all start in sin, actually, like with a deficit or a debt that Jesus then has to pay just to get us back to zero. And then through the Holy Spirit, Jesus empowers us to do good deeds that transform society. We don't have anything. We, we, we're, our, our pockets might as well be out. We are spiritually broke before God. Everything we have, we return to him. And we want to maintain this attitude forever. This isn't something that when you initially come to Jesus, you realize that you're spiritually broke. You're still spiritually broke after 10 years with Jesus. You only have what he gives you. Everything, every, every good and perfect gift from above comes from the Father, it says in James. Every gift comes from the Father. Now, how might being poor in spirit provide happiness or satisfaction? Well, this, I think, understanding your own spiritual poverty is a key to gratitude. When you start almost every prayer off with, like, thank you, God, for my house. Thank you, God, for my job. Thank you, God, for my family. Because you realize, like, you didn't earn it. Even though you might have put in work, you still didn't earn it. If, if I had... Let's say I had like a million dollars in gold bars in the basement of the church, right? Okay, I don't. <laughs> Some of you seem like, ugh. I don't. But let's say I did. And I said, hey, whatever you can carry home is yours. 
Some of you would be down there four bars under each arm. By the time you got home, you'd be sweating. I got 80 grand. Okay, did you put in work? Yes. Did you earn it? No. You didn't earn the right to that money. It's a gift. But you still put in effort to obtain it. You didn't earn it, but you did obtain it. Does that make sense? This is how things work with God. You don't earn anything, but you still have to put in effort to obtain it. You're obtaining the gift he gave you. Does that make sense? You might break a sweat uh, serving Jesus. I hope you do. You might have to put in some effort. You might have to do some work. But even in the midst of that, you just need to know, I didn't earn this. I'm obtaining it. Not attaining it, obtaining it. So, being uh, understanding our spiritual poverty actually helps us to achieve happiness and blessedness because we can respond to God with gratitude. In uh, the next verse, he says, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Uh, so, here's how we want to understand what he means by mourn. He is contrasting mourning with comfort. So we are talking about actually the emotional process of either what we would call grieving or mourning. And this morning, I'm going to use grieving and mourning interchangeably. I I do think that they're equal, uh, just different words for the same thing. But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who go through the grieving process when they experience pain, loss, and disappointment. Um, I don't know if there's a group of people in the world that shut down the grieving process better than Christians. With like cliches and trite phrases. Oh, don't cry. They're in a better place. And, uh, you know, you're, you're actually short-circuiting the Sermon on the Mount <laughs> when, when you try to shut that down. I have a little rule for myself. When someone's grieving, do not give them a tissue. Because then they become self-conscious. And they're like, i got to get the snot. Let them cry it out. Then give them a tissue when they're done. Or maybe they need a towel. I don't know. But, or and a, new, a change of clothes. But we want to be a people that are not afraid of the grieving process. They're not afraid of mourning. We live in a fallen world. We have one foot in heaven and the other foot on earth. So we have these heavenly expectations that for like things like healing and restoration and breakthrough and God's power. At the same time, we live on earth where things don't always go the way we want them to go. And God and his genius designed into our souls, the grieving process so that we can have joy restored in the midst of a world that has fallen. So that you and I can lose things and experience pain and see disappointments because those are all realities, right? But we don't have to be depressed about it forever. God put this little process in place called grieving because he knew we, we would live on a fallen wor- in a fallen world But he didn't want us to feel that pain forever, so he designed this process called grieving to restore joy in a fallen world. We can get into grieving a little more, you know, some other time. Uh, There's a a psychologist by the last name of Kubler-Ross who identifies these five stages of grieving. 
denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And while those five stages aren't in the Bible, I do find them to be helpful. Uh, the, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I think, is her name. Um, but here, here's what I do find in the Bible. Psalm 30, the whole psalm gives us insight about grieving and mourning. It says that though the weeping may last through the night, joy comes in the morning. Morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, like in the daytime, not M-O-U-R-N. But you, you have to go through the pain if you want to get to joy on the other side. Later in the same psalm, Psalm 30, David, I think it's David that's writing this, says it's a psalm of David, says that God turns our mourning into dancing. If you short-circuit the mourning process, you short-circuit the joy process. If you short-circuit or stop the grieving process, you will not have dancing. Does that make sense? We, if we really want to see people's joy restored, we have to walk them through patiently those dark periods of mourning and grieving. And the ultimate goal, at least according to the five stages of grief, is acceptance. But, but here's what acceptance looks like. It's, acceptance is what happened happened, but it's not going to affect every decision I make moving forward. It, it happened, I can't change it, I'm accepting it, and now I'm starting to move forward in reality. Uh, that's what we want to see people get through, but there is, no, there is no prescribed timeline for this. You can't say, like, oh, you have 10 days to grieve, or you have a year to grieve. It's an ongoing cycle. It gets a little better over time. I still miss people I've lost. I still miss relationships that were damaged. I still miss, I'm still upset about disappointments. But as I grieve them, they don't take up all the space in my head every day. So Jesus is saying, you're blessed when you do that. You're actually going to experience more joy when you grieve losses. So I, I think you need to grieve losses. Actually, grief is the feeling of loss. Anytime you lose something, that kind of ache in your heart, that's called grief. So when you lose something, you can lose a person, you can lose a job, you can lose, like, some people feel like they've lost their innocence. Um, the loss of a house, the loss of expectations, uh, you know, the loss of safety. When you feel that loss, you want to grieve that. Uh, you also want to grieve pain uh, when you experience pain, and also, like, disappointments. You want to grieve disappointments. Here are your options, really. You can either grieve or you can grow cold, hard, and cynical. That's it. There's no third option. The longer you stop the grieving process, the longer you put that off, the harder you grow, the colder you grow, the more cynical you get over time. And, uh, well, that's life. Sorry. So Jesus is saying we want to grieve. We want to go through the mourning process. Uh, next, next verse, verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the gentle, or in, in some translations, it says meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I actually like the word meek better. Um, I think gentle sometimes paints a picture that we distort, like, uh, oh, I'm, I whisper everything I say, and I don't move too quickly because I don't want to scare an animal. And, you know, like... I wear soft, muted colors, and, okay, you guys know what I'm saying. Okay, this is, I, I, I like the word meek, 
because I actually think meek better reflects what Jesus is teaching. And I would just define meek the way uh, Craig Keener, who's a New Testament scholar, defines it. Those who depend on the Lord rather than themselves. That's meek. If you depend on God rather than yourself, that's meekness. So instead of puffing up your chest, I got this. I'm Jim. That's not meek. And if you say I'm Jim, then you're confused. <laughs> Meekness is like the Lord's going to get, the Lord's going to take care of this. The, I don't know how this is going to work out. The Lord is going to work this out somehow, some way. I don't know how. But God's going to do this. So meekness is depending on the Lord rather than on yourself. In the book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, it's the best explanation of meekness that I've ever heard. I want to say it's chapter 9, but I forget the chapter, but it, there's a whole chapter dedicated to meekness. Oh, my goodness, he explains it so well. So if you have The Pursuit of God, uh, check out this chapter by Tozer. If you don't have it, you should get this book, for goodness sakes. How do you not have this book already? This is what he says. Uh, oh, it is chapter 9. A meek person knows well that the world will never see them as God sees them, and they have stopped caring. They care not at all who is greater than them, for they have long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. A meek person does not get their feelings hurt easily. A meek person doesn't wonder, well, why did that person get a promotion, and I didn't get a promotion, I should get a promotion, I deserve a promotion. A meek person says, when the Lord determines it's time, it'll be time. Does that make sense? Here's what a, a not meek person says. Why do they get more likes on Facebook than I do? A person who is meek doesn't care, doesn't know, doesn't count. You know what I mean? Like the esteem and prestige and reputation, they just don't even matter to a meek person. Now, I'm not saying that a meek person cannot have ambition. A meek person can have ambition, but a meek person will not crawl over other people for their ambition. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about, I'm not saying that meekness is, I have no goals, I don't care. I'm not talking about complacency. A person who is meek can still have goals, they can still be driven, they can still have ambition, but they're not willing to hurt other people to get there. They're not willing to cut corners morally and ethically to get there. They're not willing to compromise biblical principles to get there. Does that make sense? So you can still be driven, still want to go, still want to have goals, but you're not going to hurt anyone or compromise your relationship with God in order to achieve those things. You're going to trust the Lord rather than your ability to hustle and make things happen for yourself. Uh, it actually says that the meek will inherit the earth. Uh, oh, there we go. In verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, which is actually referring back to Psalm 37, verse 11. It says... Just the same thing, the meek will inherit the earth. Here's the fascinating thing about why the meek should inherit the earth. They're the only ones that don't care. They're the ones who are like, I don't even need to be in charge. That's what qualifies them to be in charge. Does that make sense? Like, they're not going to use power to hurt other people. They're going to use it to serve. Meekness provides happiness by disengaging from the rat race and getting us off the ladder of success. 
where other people are climbing over us as we climb over others. Finally, Jesus says, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These are people that actually have a hunger and a thirst for the things of God. A deep longing for personal holiness as well as justice for the oppressed. Um, it, you know, we just had a baby uh, two and a half months ago, and one of the indicators for sickness in a little baby is when they're not hungry. If a, if a baby has no appetite, that's a bad thing, right? And so uh, you want your child to eat. You want your pets to eat. You want your kids to have an appetite. And Jesus wants his followers to have an appetite. Jesus wants his Christians to be hungry spiritually. If you do not have spiritual hunger, that's a sign something's sick, something's wrong. You should have spiritual hunger. You should have a hunger and a thirst for the things of God. If you don't, you need to take a step back and like see what's up with that. Why don't I have a hunger for the things of God? Why, don't I, why am I so passive about this? Why am I uninterested in the things of God? So it's a blessed place to be when you have a hunger for the things of God. Specifically, righteousness. Now, that word righteousness is a loaded word. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Hebrew and Greek, the word for righteousness is the same as the word for justice. Those two words go together uh, almost 100% of the time. And here's how we want to understand those. When it's referring to personal practices, it's righteousness. So when you follow God, that's righteous. When we're talking about corporate level systemic stuff, it's justice. So when it's personal, we use the word righteous. When it's corporate, we use the word justice. Does that make sense? So when a person makes good decisions that glorify God and are moral, they're making righteous decisions. When a system or a community or a society honors God with good decisions, that's justice. Justice is systemic righteousness. Like a, a, a court system that honors God and its decisions is a just system. A government that honors God in its practices and policies is a just government. Does that make sense? When a person does it, it's righteousness. When a corporate, corporate body does it, it's justice. I think Jesus is saying, you want to be hungry for that. Be hungry for it personally and also call for it in society and in culture. And this provides happiness by fueling our pursuit of God as well as helping to alleviate the response of others. Um, now, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, if you read those and you're like, this seems impossible, you're reading it right. This is not a moral code. This isn't a list to check off, like, oh, I'm going to work on these. i got my eight New Year's resolutions. These are not resolutions. Just like the Ten Commandments, these are ideas that should drive you to your knees in desperation for God. Like, Lord, I can't be meek, poor, or hungry, or mourn without the Holy Spirit. I will not live up to these standards. And if you think maybe these are attainable, wait till we get to where Jesus says, like, don't even be angry at your brother. Don't even look at a person lustfully. I mean... You cannot fulfill the Sermon on the Mount without the Holy Spirit. You're going to get so frustrated. You're going to actually, 
Here's what people do sometimes when they try to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount in their own strength. They actually start dumbing it down like he didn't really mean that. He must have meant this. And they try to dumb it down to the point where they can live it out in their own strength. But the Sermon on the Mount is actually driving us to dependence on the Holy Spirit. And Jesus generously provides the Holy Spirit to us. I mean, he actually says that he gives the Holy Spirit without measure, meaning he doesn't hold back. He's not like one cup for you, one cup for you. He just dumps everything. And it's okay if it spills over because he gives without measure. So I want to invite you to something. Um, Right now, we said this last Sunday, our church is in a season of waiting on God for more of the Holy Spirit. Um, You know, I I really, I thought about just sending you all out with a kick in the pants and saying, like, go do the Sermon on the Mount. Go do it. You'll all get mad at me by tomorrow. Why did you tell us? Um, I, I I still think we should all go try to act this out, but I think we also want to be waiting on the Holy Spirit to empower us to actually live this out. So here's what I want to invite you to. In two weeks, two weeks from yesterday, on May 11th, during our normal church prayer meeting, I am calling for an all-church prayer meeting. Saturday night, May 11th at 7 p.m., right here. I want to invite as many of you as can come to join us for that prayer meeting where we're just going to wait on God together. Okay? We don't have an agenda. We just have expectation. We're just expecting God to do something. I mean, we'll schedule, we'll have a worship leader, and like we'll do all that, but... Um, I don't have an order of service for that other than to wait on God. So in your own time, spend some time waiting on God and then plan to join us on May 11th to wait on God as a community and ask him for more of the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk out the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and join us on stage. They're going to lead us in one final song and then uh, we're going to dismiss you. Would you mind standing with me? I want to pray for us. Jesus, you gave us these, expect, well, standards to live by and expectations, but you also give us the power to fulfill them and to walk them out. So we want to walk these out in the power of the Holy Spirit, not the power of our own might or strength or flesh. So I pray, Lord, as we just set aside some time to wait on you, fill us with your Spirit. Give us the power, the energy, the strength to live these principles out in a way that glorifies you. And I pray that in your name.